The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. If you have uh, if you have your Bibles, please open them up to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, it's one of the New Testament letters. We are now in our second week. We've just kicked off uh, this series through the book that will take us for the next basically two months um, up and, and we're going to walk through together. And today we're going to be uh, doing most of Philippians chapter one. Well, it was about um, 20 or so years ago that reality TV kind of hits the U.S. and became a popular thing. Remember some of those original shows, that first season of American Idol, there was Survivor and kind of every kind of spinoff of reality TV um, along that. And kind of in that genre as well, kind of became a new thing called transformation shows. If you're into decorating your house, one of the common ones that was really popular, if you remember, was Extreme Home Makeover where they take the family away from their house, they decorate it. Remember, they'd move the bus as this brand new house, this huge transformation happened. Now, I don't know why or, you know, why I got attracted to this show, but for many, many years, my wife and I, every Thursday night, would watch Biggest Loser. I don't know if you remember Biggest Loser ran for years on Thursday nights. And it was great because as a pastor, Thursday nights are my Friday nights. My weekend is Friday, Saturday. And so it's kind of like the week was gone. And so we would get home from work and we'd throw, you know, eat dinner, put that on. And I don't know why it always happened, though, that when we watched The Biggest Loser, which is a weight loss show, we always ate ice cream. It doesn't, it makes no sense, but that's just what we always did. In the show, I, it's just this radical transformation, right, of people who are very, very unhealthy and kind of their journey, right? I think like if any single one of us were, were taken away from our homes, put on a strict diet and worked out for six hours a day, we would be like, yeah, actually, I could use that for a couple of weeks, please. But these are people who are very unhealthy and you see this transformation. And at the end, kind of what they always try and communicate to the people is, hey, there's a reason that you got there to begin with. You've experienced this bodily transformation and now you need to live differently so you don't end up back there again, right? That you need to leave, live differently so it doesn't happen to you again. See, as followers of Jesus, we've actually experienced a much larger transformation than even that because we haven't gone from unhealthy to healthy. We've gone from death to life. And the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in his death, the resurrection, and the forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus brings about and should bring about a total transformation that we shouldn't live the same way as we once lived if we have indeed been changed by Jesus. And in the passage today that we're going to look at, there's three evidences of gospel transformation, of this kind of change in our lives that should be seen and known by others. Our passage this morning is mostly, um, the first about 12, 15 verses or so, is kind of a missionary report that Paul gives. If you hear last week, we talked about how Paul helped establish this church, and this church in Philippi was the first one to support him financially. And if you have ever supported a missionary financially, you know one of the regular things that they do is they will send you updates of what God is doing, how your money is being used to advance the gospel. And so we kind of have this at the beginning here with Paul, and we see some of the signs of gospel transformation as he walks through this. So let's jump in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This first sign of gospel transformation that we see is a passion for the gospel. Paul here shows, which every believer should have in our lives, a passion for the gospel as he looks at the circumstances around him and conveys this message to this church. First, we have this first section in in verses 12 to 14 on the advancement of the gospel and kind of the surprising advancement of the gospel. First, as a reminder, if you weren't here last week, Paul is imprisoned. He's imprisoned in Rome because of his preaching of the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was in prison, my first attitude would be to complain about the hardships. What does Paul do? He says, hey guys, check it out. I'm in prison and I get to preach to people. And it's amazing. Because what happened back then is you weren't just locked away, but you were placed with guards. And so there was this Roman imperial soldiers that were constantly with him, 24-7 most likely. And guess what happened if you were chained up with Paul? You heard about Jesus. And Paul's like, hey, I would have never gotten a chance to tell these people about Jesus, but I'm in prison and now they get to hear about Jesus. He doesn't focus on the challenges, the hardships, but his perspective is so shifted that he sees in this imprisonment, in his chains, actually the goodness of the gospel going forward because he gets this audience that he never would have happened, that he never would have had otherwise. Not only that, but you'd think perhaps that it, because he's arrested, all the other believers in Rome are now terrified that they don't want to speak of Jesus because they've seen what's happened to Paul. But he assures them in verse 14, it's actually the opposite that has happened. They've seen Paul get imprisoned for preaching the gospel, and they are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. That it has been an encouragement to other believers as well. But Paul paints a realistic picture. It's not all rainbows and butterflies for him in prison. There's been real challenges as well. And he highlights that in verses 15 to 18. See, there's two groups of people in Rome who have been preaching the gospel, one of which is very good, right? They preach out of goodwill. They preach out of love for Paul, love for others. And then there's this other group. We don't have a lot of detail. We know what Paul says here. They, They preach to try and build up envy, strife, and out of selfish ambition. This was most likely a group that didn't like the audience, how many people liked Paul and followed Paul's teaching. And so they're thinking, hey, Paul's locked in prison. He can't preach to a lot of people. We're gonna preach to a lot of people and make him jealous. And Paul's response, great. Because Jesus is going forth. So these people here aren't preaching a false gospel. Notice what it says in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ. They're doing it from the wrong motives. If, if you're preaching the wrong gospel and you're not preaching Jesus, Paul will call you on it. Read the book of Galatians if you don't think that's true. Like Paul has no problem calling out people who aren't preaching Jesus. But they're preaching Jesus, but with the wrong motives, trying to hurt him. And rather than have his feelings hurt, what is Paul saying? As long as you preach Jesus, I rejoice. You're doing it to try and hurt me, but it's actually a good thing that he can find worth and value in what is happening. See, how, how can Paul have this kind of attitude 
Well, first, it's clear from, from those first verses that Paul values the gospel over his own comfort. Paul valued the advance of the gospel over his own comfort. That he's like, hey, I'm in prison, but the gospel is going forward so I can see my discomfort is actually a good thing because God is using it to advance the gospel. I rejoice because of it. See, for so many of us, myself certainly included, when the gospel and comfort come to heads, it is so easy to choose comfort, right? We live in the most comfortable time in the most comfortable place. Even the weather here is comfortable. I mean, come on. Yesterday in February, we're like, it's not 60 degrees. It's so hard here. We are so comfortable in our lives. But sometimes the gospel pushes us out of comfort and we would rather choose comfort than to be true to the gospel and step out in what Jesus would have for us. But Paul has this transformative perspective that hey, even in pain and suffering and imprisonment, if that advances the gospel, it's a good thing. We should rejoice that we too should value the gospel over our own comfort. The other thing we see from how his response is towards these other preachers is that Paul values the gospel over his own reputation. He's like, hey, you can go about and trash me in your churches, but as long as you preach Jesus, trash me away. I don't care because I don't matter. It's not me. It's all about Jesus. And as long as the gospel is going forth, he didn't even care what their motives were. But as long as Jesus was being proclaimed, Paul was good with it. This is easy to say that the gospel matters more than our own reputation, and it is much harder to do. I've been in ministry for 15 years now, basically. I'm coming up to the end of the school. It'll be 15 years as a pastor. Easier to say, much harder to practice. I was reminded as I was studying this passage of a time where the truth of this hit me right in the face many years ago. I worked at a a church previously that was um, what you would call a traditional or a formal church. If you're newer to church or Christianity, there's kind of very formal traditional churches, and then there's contemporary and kind of everything in between. Our church is on the contemporary side of things. That's just how the music sounds, how everything looks. The church I was working at was a very formal church. It was a big deal when I was working there when the pastors didn't have to wear ties on the stage anymore. That was a big deal. So, ooh, we're progressive. I love it. So many years later, the elders actually at the church asked me, hey, Michael, would you actually start a contemporary service at our church? And I said, sure, because you know what? It's great. Christians don't care about styles of music, about lights, about dress. All we care is the gospel. No one has strong preferences about any of those other things. So everyone will be, if you're, if you're not laughing at that joke, you're new. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Christians care about those things way too strongly. But I knew about it. It wasn't new at church. So I was like, hey, that's okay. I get, I have the elders backing. Let's do it. Months of hard work, over six months. We hired people. We built up volunteer teams, musicians, like all of this. Remember, we, we launched that fall and it was an amazing service. More, like more people than we had ever had at that, at that time of service. And God was doing a work. The gospel went forth. I went home. I was like on cloud nine. I was like, this is the best. I love this. I woke up Monday morning. I checked social media. And there was someone who was very active, served regularly at our church, who posted the link of me preaching the night before on their social media with this description. It said, pray for my church. This is our new direction. Suddenly, I wasn't very happy anymore. I wish I could have been like, and I was just like Paul, like, praise the Lord, the gospel is going forth. And I was like, how dare you insult me on Facebook? 
right? And I remember I was heated. I was not happy. And I went to uh, our pastors met at that time at the church I was working at on a Monday morning. And I went and I was hot, right? And I was like, how dare this guy? What is, who does he think he is? What is he trying to do? I remember one of our pastors is sitting over in the corner. He said, Michael, I want to just read a verse for you. And he opened up the Bible and he said, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And I went, oh. Because the reality was, it doesn't matter if he was doing it to try and be mean to me. He was posting a sermon of the gospel being preached online. And I should have rejoiced because of that. It shouldn't matter what he thinks of me. It's all about the gospel. Now, I doubt for many of us, by the way, that's the only time that's happened. I don't get like a lot of hate mail on social media. So don't worry about like, about that. So, but I doubt none of us very rarely have like people protesting us on social media we're probably not in feeling like we're gonna get imprisoned because we're Christians, like Paul is. So, so how do we value comfort and reputation over the gospel? I think for so many Christians, it's by how little we talk about it. We're, we're seeing that we value our own comfort, we value our own reputation over the gospel because we just don't really talk about it a lot to other people. We don't talk about it a lot to other Christians and we certainly don't talk about it a lot to people who don't follow Jesus as well. I love this phrase that um, a theologian came up with many years ago as he studied early church history in the book of Acts and how the gospel spread from this small group of people throughout the entire world in just a matter of years. How did it spread? And he came up with this phrase. He said, the gospel spread because people gossiped the gospel. I love that. They gossiped the gospel, meaning it was their small talk. When, when they were walking, when they were out with their kids, when they were at work, what did they do? They, they just talked about Jesus. And Jesus just filled their lives everywhere. The gospel didn't go forth because after Jesus went to heaven, they're like, all right, we're gonna have a big revival meeting. Everyone's gonna come. We're gonna have great music, a great sermon, and thousands of people will be saved. And that's all we need to do. No, like sometimes that can happen, but how did the gospel grow? It's because not of great crazy people are preaching really great messages, but because very ordinary women and men whose lives had been transformed by the gospel just went out and started talking about Jesus. They couldn't stop talking about the change that he had made in their life. The vision of this church is to tip the culture of the South Valley towards Jesus. That's not gonna happen because of some great sermon or some big events that a church does. What will tip the culture towards Jesus is when people like you and me start gossiping the gospel everywhere. See, Paul was so excited to be in prison because he realized this principle of the power of proximity, that God has placed you where you are, not by accident, but he has placed you in proximity with other people for the purposes of the gospel. And he's like, look at these soldiers. I would have never gotten to know them before. Now they get to hear about Jesus. My prayer is that for every person who goes to Morgan Hill Bible Church, that they would gossip the gospel to their neighbors. They would gossip the gospel to their coworkers. They would gossip the gospel at work, at school, when they're out at the, at the park with their friends. That It would just become such a natural part of our life just to talk about Jesus and the change he's made and what we're learning and how he's changing our desires and our love for him. That's how a work of God can happen. Because God has placed you where you live, where you work, where you go to school. It's not by accident. Just like Paul didn't end up in prison by accident. He was there to serve the gospel. God's placed you where you are to serve the gospel. My prayer is that we too would have this passion for the gospel, that we would step out of our comfort zone, step out of our caring about our own reputation and take risks in talking about Jesus to other people. 
The second evidence of the gospel is seen as Paul continues in his missionary report in verse 18. He says this, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The second evidence of gospel transformation is a devotion to Jesus in our lives. A devotion to Jesus in our lives. Paul says here that he's looking forward because of their prayers and the help of the Spirit to his deliverance. Now what he's meaning there in verse 19 isn't he's thankful and finds joy because he knows he's gonna get out of jail. That's not what he means. He's confident of that and he believes he will. But deliverance, he's talking about his salvation. It's the same, the same concept that Job actually uses in the Old Testament in Job chapter 13, when he pleads before God and he says, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. That, that Paul's saying, hey, listen, I'm not happy because I know I'm gonna get released. I'm happy because of what the spirit is doing and because Jesus has placed me here, whether I get out or not. He says that it's his eager expectation to not be ashamed. This word eager expectation only shows up one other time in the New Testament. It's in Romans chapter eight, when it talks about creation longing for the day of redemption. Just as creation longs to be fully redeemed by God, Paul is saying, I long that Jesus would be honored and glorified in my life, whatever that looks like, in my life or in my death. And he has this phrase, this well-known verse in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Because of translation, we actually add the verbs in, which is normally there in the original languages, but to accentuate it and to emphasize it even higher in the original languages, he literally puts, for to me, Christ, life, die, gain. There's no verbs. He takes it out so it stands out and it's a higher emphasis even there. Because of this reality of a devoted life to Christ and what it looks like to follow Jesus both now but for eternity, he says, I am hard pressed between the two. He, he gets very personal. He has a great love for this church and kind of bears his soul to them. Now, he doesn't mean here that he's hoping to die. He's not saying, I hope to die in prison because what does he say at the end? Like, I hope to come to you again and see you in person. So why is he hard pressed? Because for the believer When we are devoted our life to Christ, we realize that the gain of eternity is amazing. See, in our lives, when you're a follower of Jesus and your truest and highest satisfaction in life is found in Jesus, what do you get more of when you die? More Jesus. You're in his presence. He makes you whole. And thus death is not a negative thing, but is actually for your benefit because the thing that in this life brings you the greatest joy, you just get more of someday. And it brings such joy and anticipation in your life. That for the Christian death and for Paul, he saw this is actually to our advantage, not to our negative. With this attitude that Paul has here, 
Imagine the Roman soldiers trying to, to deal with him. They'd be like, all right, Paul, we're gonna lock you up in prison. And Paul's like, great, that serves the gospel. I get to preach. Paul, we're gonna kill you. He's like, great, I get to be with Jesus. I can't wait. We're gonna let you go. Great, I get to go on and serve Jesus even more. They're like, what are we supposed to do with this guy? Right, he doesn't fall into the categories. Why? Because for Paul, his life was consumed with Jesus. And as long as I'm alive, I am here to serve Jesus. See, he lived a Christ-centered life. That is his prayer. Look at verse 19. As always that Christ will be honored, whether by life or by death. Paul's prayer is that everything in life as ours should be, that everything in our lives would be for the honor and devotion and glory of Jesus. I came across again this week a well-known prayer by the missionary St. Patrick from over 1,500 years ago. I'm gonna read the the prayer in full force because I just think it encapsulates what this Christ-centered life looks like so well. He prayed this. As I arise today, may the strength of God pilot me, the power of God uphold me, the wisdom of God guide me. May the eye of God look before me, the ear of God behind me, the word of God speak for me. May the hand of God protect me, The way of God lie before me. The shield of God defend me. The host of God save me. May Christ shield me today. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit. Christ when I stand. Christ at the heart of everyone who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. Amen. That's what a Christ-centered life looks like. That in every circumstance of our lives, that Jesus would be honored and exalted. There's few verses in the Bible that better summarize that than, than the verse that Paul has written down there in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. He, he says, for me, he, he's made this commitment. This is true for me. To live is, is Christ. It's all about Jesus. And because of that, to die is gain. See, you may not have sat down and consciously thought of this, but all of us fill in the blanks for that verse and how we live our lives. All of us live with the truth. To live is blank and to die is blank. Because all of us, we are living for something. There's a purpose and aim for every single one of our lives, whether you've consciously sat down and decided it or whether you're just going with what you're feeling. You are leading your life targeted towards something. And whatever your target is to live is for something. What is the result if you die is the result of something else, right? And so if to live is money, to die is being broke. If to live is to accumulate power, To die is to be powerless. If to live is to have sexual pleasure in life, to die is to have no more pleasure. If to live is to be entertained and have fun, to die is to have no more fun. If to live is to be seen as successful, to die is to be seen as a failure. It's only when we live for Christ that to die actually is to our gain. If there's anything else that is there, to live is this, to die makes it worse. The only way that death is to our advantage is if our life is lived for Jesus. So there's only one option where death is gained and that is life lived in Christ. And our hearts are so quick because we don't have to be told and our culture pulls us to put everything besides Jesus at the center of our lives. 
to put success, to put power, to put money, to put image, to put all these different things at the forefront. And as Christians, we have to push back against that and say, no, Christ at the center. Christ at the focus to live is Jesus, not accumulation of power, not influence in the world. Those things are fine, but to live the core of my life is Jesus. And we need, like Paul did, to push back against those things that would creep into our hearts and make Jesus that commitment in our lives. This last evidence of gospel transformation is seen as Paul starts to transition into the main body of the letter in the, in the closing verses in chapter one. He says this, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This third evidence of gospel transformation is a commitment to kingdom living, a commitment in our lives as followers of Jesus to kingdom living. He starts this, this passage, this verse with the phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That, word, that phrase manner of life could literally be translated, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel. And he's playing on here, if you were here last week, we talked about how Philippi was a unique Roman area in that it was a full Roman colony. And to be a citizen of Philippi meant you were a citizen of Rome. And that was a unique thing. And so there was great pride in their natural citizenship. And he's playing on their natural pride, just as you're proud of being from Philippi and the, and the insignificance that comes with that and the responsibility, we as followers of Jesus need to take understanding of who we are in Jesus. We are part of his kingdom to be worthy citizens of the gospel, what he calls us to. So, so he, he goes on, what does that worthy life look like? What does citizenship in the kingdom looks like that Jesus is calling us to? Well, first off, it's unity that Jesus is calling us to unity as a reflection, as commitment to kingdom living. And he uses two terms, two expressions here to get to it. In verse 27, he says that he may hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. That word standing firm is a military term. That just as soldiers would go on a battlefront, not one of them up trying to save everyone else, but standing side by side together, locking arms and holding the line against the enemy. That too, as Christians, we stand side by side, firm, defending the gospel against all of the influences from this world that may come to it. So he pulls from here this imagery of soldiers. In the next line, it says, of one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That word striving is an athletic metaphor. That just as a team, if it's made up of talented individuals, but they don't work together, it will fail. Your strength is not in how good you are, but in your unity once to another. If you're an NBA fan, you saw this week, how you can put talented people together. It doesn't mean a great team as they all got traded away from the Brooklyn Nets this week, right? It doesn't matter how talented people are if they can't work together. And it's that same mind in the church that if you can't work and strive side by side alongside one another, it won't make a difference. This is going back to last week and that gospel partnership that Paul was so thankful that they have had and he continues with them to work more. This unity should first be seen here in the body of Christ in our local gathering, 
but it should extend beyond that and to see this unity that we have with other Christians and with other churches as well. Now, I'm still relatively new, although I can't really say that for too much longer. I've been here for over a year and a half now. And I have been so thankful for, from my perspective, the perceived unity of the churches here in the Morgan Hill area. I want you to know this, that we are not in competition with other churches in Morgan Hill or San Martin or Gilroy. They are not the enemy. They're not the competition. In fact, this last week, several of us gathered together. We actually were meeting with uh, the new mayor of Morgan Hill, with Mark Turner. And there were several of us. We met up at West Hills Church and there was staff from West Hills. I was there. There was other staff from Cathedral of Faith, from Vive Church, from Kind Faith, from Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. All of us gathered together. And you know what we do when we see each other? We give each other hugs because we actually like each other. I don't know if you know that or not, but pastors, we actually have friends who are pastors. They're not bad people down there. They're just a different church and that's, that's okay. And it's a good thing. And we need to realize that the enemy is not the church down the street or the church that expresses their beliefs or has worship a little bit different than us. That's not the enemy. The enemy's out there. And if we can't stand united with other Christians who have very small differences or preferences, we're not gonna stand in this world. That as the church in Morgan Hill, we're not doing this alone as Morgan Hill Bible Church, but there's other churches that preach the gospel here and we need them to grow and to partner with us that together, not by ourselves, but together God would do something here. We're not in competition with them. We all are on the same team. We strive side by side, not for our sake, not so Morgan Hill would be great, but so that Jesus would be great. Not for one church to grow, but for the gospel to grow. That's what matters. And all of us need to have that spirit of unity, understanding those other churches, they're not the competition. They are our partners in ministry and what God is doing here in the South Valley. So not only do we need this sense of unity that he talks about, but in verse 28, we need to be fearless as well. We need to have this gospel tenacity. Notice what he says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, how can we live in this world without fear? I'll tell you how you can't do it. You can't do it if you're trying to do it on your own. If you're trying to live for Jesus in this world, in this culture, being fearless on your own, it's not gonna work. You can only be fearless in standing for Jesus as you stand side by side with linking arms with other believers. You can't do it on your own. You need people to pray for you, to love for you, to support you, to call you when you're down. You have to have that in your life. So we only can be fearless as long as we stand together, not alone. With, uh, with having a young one at home, she's in her two, our oldest, is I get to go to a lot of parks now. I didn't used to do that as a get guy without kids, but now I do. I go to a lot of parks, like all of you who have young kids. And there's this funny thing that happens almost every time our family goes to a park. Our oldest, she's two and a half. She'll run up the stairs, go to the top of the slide, and she'll go to look down, and she'll like go backwards and go right back down the stairs. And she'll come over to Kristen, my wife, and I and go, I'm, I'm scared. In her cute little two-year-old voice, I'm scared, I'm scared. And what does she do? She wants, normally mom, she likes mom more than dad right now, right? She wants mom to go up and to go down the slide with her. Because if mom's with her, it's not scary anymore because she's not on her own. So if you try and face the world, if you try and live for Jesus on your own, you're gonna be terrified. But if you're doing it alongside one another with people surrounding you and on your side fighting with you, it, you can do so fearlessly because you're not doing it on your own. And the reality is the more you find belonging in the body of Christ, the less you will fear rejection from others. The more you find your sense of belonging in who God is and the community of faith that he has surrounded you with, you will not be in fear of rejection from other people and you can stand fearless 
not frightened like how Paul calls this church in Philippi to. This third characteristic of, of commitment to kingdom living is seen in verses 29 and 30, and it's this, it's suffering graciously. How do we live for Jesus? How do we represent the kingdom in this world? It's we suffer graciously. I really wish, as I sometimes say with these verses, I really wish it would say, it's been granted for you for the sake of Christ that your life will be easy and happy and you'll have no problems. That would preach really well. But what does it say? It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that not only should you believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That suffering is a necessary part of every single one of our lives. That we don't get an exemption card from it as follower of Jesus. But what do we see here? That in that phrase, it has been granted to you. You translate it almost, it has been gifted to you. That suffering, it can actually be seen in this mindset as kingdom citizens, as a gift from God to us. Not that we go and seek after, not that God ordains evil into our lives, not at all, but that God can and will, if we allow him, use every single pain point in our lives to grow us to become more like him. And in that way, as Christians, suffering is actually a gift from God to us. See, your spiritual lives are like the rest of your life. You don't grow unless you're pushed outside your comfort zone, right? Financially, in your job, in all, relationally, unless you're pushed and stretched outside your comfort zone, you're not growing as a person. And it's the same spiritually. When God wants to grow you and shape you, what does he do? He makes you uncomfortable. He puts suffering into your life and he gives you in circumstances where you will have to practice the fruit of the spirit. I don't wanna be patient, but God's gonna give me opportunities to be patient. He will give me unloving people to allow me to express the love that I have in my life. He will give you things in your life so that you will be able to suffer graciously for him. Why can we do it? Not because we're better, but because we can see the purpose behind it. That Jesus is using this and we can suffer graciously seeing how he will use it in our lives. See, as Christians, we are called in this world to be many Christs to the people around us. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We bear his name and we represent him. And I get as what my name is, what it's like to have a name to live up to. Now, if you don't know, my last name is Best. And you can try, but you will not come up today with a last name joke that I have not heard before. You can try, you won't. You're the best pastor ever. Uh, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. Like, I've heard them all, right? But the, the funniest one is when I normally meet someone and they ask what my name is and I tell them my last name. They always go, whoa, that's a hard name to live up to. Like I picked it or something. And I'm like, I'm gonna be the best. And tell them, I'm like, no, it's just my family name, right? But as Christians, we do have a name to live up to. We bear the name of Christ. And he calls us to represent him to the world to suffer graciously, to be devoted to Jesus, to see our lives focused on Jesus. So much so that if we're to die, it's actually gain for us. To be willing to be uncomfortable for our reputations to be set aside for the sake of the gospel. We have a name to live up to because we bear the name of Jesus to this world. It's my prayer that we would have this passion for the gospel, this devotion for Jesus, that we would live lives worthy of the citizenship of heaven right where God has placed every single one of us. God, we do thank you for the salvation that we have in Jesus. That you have called us, you have transformed us, you have changed our lives. God, I pray that we would be passionate for the gospel 
that we would be willing to go outside of our comfort zones, outside of our reputations, to share the good news of what you've done and the hope, the healing, the love that's available for everyone in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that you would root from our hearts those things that we push you aside, that to live for us would truly be Jesus. That because our lives are so focused on you, we would see death as actually something even better because we will be with you. God, we love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.